The war in Ukraine enters its second week. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking with Eugene Perrier, once again about the war in Ukraine. Eugene is the, has the daily podcast, The Punch-Out. He's also the anchor of The Freedom Side with Rania Kalik every Thursday on Breakthrough News. Eugene, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Week two, the Russian government just announced casualty figures. Mm-hmm. I think the reason they did so was that the Ukrainian government was saying as many as 5,000 Russian soldiers were killed. Yep. Russia's official numbers were about 500 killed, 498, another 1,200 injured. We don't know about casualties on the Ukrainian side, but a lot of death, a lot of destruction, heavy shelling now of Kharkiv and other Ukrainian cities. Mm-hmm. Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, is surrounded. There's fierce resistance going on inside of Ukraine against the Russian military operation. Eugene, before we get started, or before we get into the sort of the nuts and bolts of what's going on right now, sort of a new assessment, I think the important way to start for us, and of course this is the socialist program, is to talk about the socialist view towards war, especially Mm. war in the imperialist epic. Lenin, in 1916, wrote the book Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. At the outbreak of World War I in 1914, a really terrible moment for the socialist movement, which had pledged up until that time that should war break out between the imperialist bourgeois governments, that they wouldn't side with their own government, that they would take advantage of the war crisis. First, they would try to end the war, but they would also take advantage of the war crisis to bring about a revolutionary transformation within their own country. So Lenin's thesis was the socialists of every country should focus on the capitalists who are, quote, their government Mm -hmm. and their imperialism and try to make hay out of it to, to make revolution. And in fact, because most of the parties of the Second International, including Germany, which was the flagship Social Democratic Party, that they had one third of the seats in parliament, all capitulated before the war hysteria, ended up supporting their own governments as the governments went to war. It looked like the Marxist thesis of workers of the world can unite was actually a fiction. Mm. And that actually the people, including the workers who were organized into socialist parties with that slogan, would indeed go and kill and slaughter each other rather than stand together. And that brought about, in many ways, the reorganization of the worldwide socialist movement, a big cleavage in the movement. Ultimately, it led to the formation of the Communist International. This was after the Russian Revolution in 1917. At the time that Lenin took that position in 1914, because Lenin and the Bolsheviks stuck to the principles articulated at the Basel Congress of the Second International, that was 1912 in Switzerland, that made this anti-war thesis. Because they stuck to their principles, 
Their members of Duma, the parliament, were arrested. They were facing the death penalty. Many of the leaders of the Bolsheviks were sent to Siberia. Some were killed. Others were dispersed into exile. The Bolsheviks lost everything. They were very, very isolated, yep. but they stuck to their principles. And then five years later, four years later, they were the government, which yep. shows that even though they endured this amazing isolation for their principles, ultimately adhering to those principles was the key element to their later success. Yep. That's a complex story, but it's very important. So let's get started talking about principles rather yep. than just talking about who shot whom, who mm. shot first, sure. where did the missiles land? What about our principles? No, I think it's a really important question because I think there are so many different things flying all over the place in this conversation. And, you know, even more than that, I think many people in the United States, even, you know, many people who are relatively attuned to international affairs, you know, don't know that much about this region of the world and certainly don't know that much about history. And that's no fault on them. But I think that it creates a lot of difficulty, exactly as you're saying, because you've got the mainstream media driving this idea that everything really is about, you know, the issue of who shot whom. And if it started seven days ago, what happened eight days ago? And that determines how you should feel about all of this. So to me, I think there's a few basic things, five basic things that can help us order the thinking. This is not everything about the crisis, but help us order the thinking. Number one is that NATO essentially caused this crisis, provoked this crisis. I mean, obviously the immediate cause is what Russia did. But I think what's important to understand is, you know, when you look at the expansion eastward of NATO, even though promising that they would not do this, if you look at the issue of supporting the Maidan coup in 2014, moving on to support and massively arm a just obviously anti-Russian government that brought in, you know, all sorts of terrible forces alongside of it, then, you know, really what people have been saying for so long about the dangers of this is bearing itself out to be true. So, you know, NATO essentially constructed the bomb, placed the bomb and lit the fuse in a way. I hate to use that framing given the, the tragic events that are happening in Ukraine, but I think it's really the only way to understand it, that this crisis was in fact provoked by NATO from their policies starting in 1989, quite frankly, when they first started talking about the need to expand NATO all the way up until the recent era where they refused to acknowledge any sort of red lines or security concerns from Russia and push up against things that they knew in fact to be risking and endangering war. I think number two, and it comes after number one, there's really no solution to the crisis without a dissolution of NATO. Now, of course, that is a position that's being widely mocked all across the mass media. The White House attacked the Democratic Socialists of America for daring to say so in their statement. We're seeing, you know, just about everyone online raising the issue of NATO being, how could you possibly say that NATO should be dissolved in this context? But we have to understand uh, point one, the war drive of NATO, quite frankly, to turn Europe into an anti-Russian trench, to militarize the continent and push ever, you know, inexorably towards the, 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 the Russian border means that the sort of reality is not so much that Ukraine is militarized, but that Europe is militarized. And that in the post-Cold War era, the official enemy politics aimed at Russia is really the principal obstacle to having a conversation about what that would mean to have a, a peaceful Europe. I mean, all the other issues around borders, around languages, economic relations, and so on and so forth are contested and highly explosive. I mean, that's what we're seeing happening right now. Mm -hmm. So the only way to really be able to have a discussion about these issues without raising the possibility of war 
is for NATO to be dissolved, for the continent of Europe to be demilitarized, for the U.S. to remove its troops, to remove the missiles, to remove the nuclear weapons, and also for Russia to engage in a, you know, tit-for-tat, deep demilitarization of their own forces and step back in something that will, you know, make those who are fearful of them see that this is not just a unilateral disarmament, but this is a broader move towards demilitarization so that, yes, there are a lot of tough conversations that would still have to happen about what that architecture could be, but it wouldn't be essentially a, a negotiation or discussion with multiple sides with guns pointed at each other as they're talking. And so even though it seems paradoxical to many people, without eliminating NATO, without dissolving NATO, without seriously talking about demilitarizing Europe, then I don't think it's going to be possible to really have these conversations without them constantly breaking out into wars, you know, over and over again, given how fraught many of these issues are. I think the third principle, and, you know, this is one that I think underpins why a lot of countries who did not like the the UN General Assembly resolution being pushed against Russia, but why they abstained as opposed to vote against it, is upholding the UN Charter. Now, when we talk about multipolarity, and we've talked about this before on the show, you know, unmanaged multipolarity is not an unalloyed good. And in fact, it really sort of promotes kind of a might makes right kind of scenario in terms of uh, the way the world is going to work. I mean, right now you have the unipolar world where the U.S. just decides whatever they're going to do. Now we're starting to see that fall away. And so anyone who has the might, if you will, to sort of push back against anyone equally or great or as equally as strong as them and say, well, we're just going to do this and there's nothing you can do about it, you know, it ultimately means that the interests of the small countries are being sacrificed for the big. The interests of the imperialists are being sacrificed for the non-imperialist countries. The interests of those who are the most economically dependent on those they're economically dependent with will maintain some level of you know, neocolonialism and dependency and so on and so forth. So you have to have some sort of system. The UN certainly isn't perfect. The UN Charter certainly isn't perfect. But you have to have some sort of system that can act as a restraining power in international relations, which is exactly why countries like Venezuela, like Iran, like China, like until very recently, Russia, Eritrea, others have put a huge emphasis on the idea of upholding the principles of the UN Charter is because they recognize there has to be some sort of controlling aspect here to keep things from just turning into a total free-for-all where whoever has the most power is able to do whatever they want to do. And right now the U.S. can act that way, but that's exactly what these countries are saying. These sort of unilateral wars, invasions, coercive measures or sanctions, as many people call them, that is wrong. It shouldn't be done that way. There needs to be some form of global collective security. And I think that when you think about that principle, it leads to the next principle, the fourth principle, and that's to oppose anti-communism and to practice anti-fascism. I mean, when you look at what's happening in Ukraine, it's really the center of what I believe to be one of the most dangerous movements on earth right now, and that is the normalization of Nazi Germany and its collaborators and the false equation of those forces inside of Europe with communists historically as they're, you know, equally as bad. You know, Stalin, Hitler, same thing. Nazis, communists, same thing. Ukraine is obviously one of the most advanced nations in terms of that broader context, having outright integrated Nazis, Nazi-adjacent forces into the government, into the armed services, into the police. But we also see this in a big way in Poland. We see it in Hungary. We actually see that the European Parliament has adopted many of these points. The nation of Canada has adopted a lot of this. This is an idea that has tremendous intellectual currency in the United States, especially amongst liberals and, you know, the New York Times opinion page and other places like that. So, you know, this has to be just aggressively and forthrightly opposed. I mean, you know, Russia, whatever else you want to say about this, is right, not wrong, to highlight this fact. It's deeply troubling and it has deeply problematic undertones given what we know that fascism has done in the history of the world. 
And, you know, Putin in his own way is also using a lot of anti-communist, anti-Bolshevik rhetoric to promote his moves into Ukraine. And I think that that in and of itself is also wrong. I mean, not only is it spurious, as we've talked about before, but, you know, we're in a moment where humanity is really crying out for the need for an alternative to capitalism. And I personally think that that is not only good and true and right, but that that means we need to defend and uphold the legacy of the Soviet Union. Not afraid to critique it, of course, but being willing to uphold the legacy of the Soviet Union and what they attempt to do in trying to build a system that could be people-centered, not profit-centered, to try to move away from capitalism towards socialism. Those are important lessons that we have to bring in. And finally, the fifth point I would say about that is that socialism is the only answer. At the end of the day, the only reason we're even in this conflict is that we still exist in a world of nation-states run by elites who are clamoring for wealth and power. And so at a time when the world needs more than ever global cooperation between all peoples, solidarity to save humanity, you know, to end poverty, to eliminate nuclear weapons, to build a sustainable future, to have, you know, real democracy in a real sense where people control the everyday, you know, their everyday lives in a much realer sense, that's only going to happen under socialism, a people-centered, not a profit-centered system. It's really the precondition for long-term world peace. We have to be able to fight for it, to build it, and in crises like these, to develop an independent voice for the worldwide socialist movement that can uphold some of these principles. So, I, you know, I'm running through a lot of things that is maybe a little messy, but, you know, I think some of those basic points that, you know, NATO is really the proximate cause of this that the solution to this conflict and the precondition for peace in Europe has to be the dissolution of NATO and the demilitarization of the continent and a significant dearmament happening between the two major powers of U.S. and Russia, that we have to look and think much more about not only upholding the U.N. charter, but how to have global collective security so it's not just who has the most weapons and the most guns, who gets to determine who has what government and what policy when. We have to oppose anti-communism. We have to stand up to fascism, and we have to recognize that we have to change the underlying reality of this capitalist, imperialist world and move to a, a socialist world that is based on cooperation, people coming together to solve our you know, shared global problems of humanity. I think that's so important. And again, when we go back to the, the heritage of the socialist movement, the Marxist movement, which has always had to contend with the issue of war, especially in Europe, you know, because that's the center of capitalism. It's the center of endless wars. When when Marx and Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848 and they said, mm -hmm. workers of the world unite, it was because without the workers of Europe, for instance, uniting, the workers of Europe were going to constantly be dragged into war after war after war. And all of these ethnic, cultural border issues that are seem to be the triggers for war yeah. sort of mask the fact that underneath it is the capitalist system. And then Lenin takes the thesis, Marx's thesis, and builds on it. And he makes the argument in imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, that, that war is an inevitable feature of capitalism in the modern era, yep. that it's not an accident. And I think that's so important. Like when most people start to wake up politically or get involved in politically, like for me, it was the Vietnam War. For people of my generation, the Vietnam War, we always thought, wow, what a terrible mistake this was. Mm. And, but then we thought, well, wait, what about the Korean War? What right. about the invasion of the Dominican Republic? What about all of these colonies? What about the actual founding of the United States, which is premised on war and militarism and slavery and genocide? So then you start, the light bulbs start to go on and you think, oh, well, wait, it's not a mistake. There is a global system and militarism and war are a feature of it. And that's become additionally acute during the imperialist era. Yep. And I want to make this point about it because, you know, 
all of the imperialists got together at the Conference of Berlin in 1884, and it was a multipolar world, and they peacefully divided Africa. Yeah. It was very peaceful between them. Right. It wasn't peaceful for the Africans. Sure. But they took all parts of Africa, with the exception of Ethiopia, and within 18 years, all forms of African self-governance were extinguished. And then after the entire world was parceled out amongst themselves, in 1914, they came to the conclusion that there was no place else to conquer. Yep. The capitalist system was an expansionist system. It had to expand and to have more and more markets and resources. If you don't expand, you die. But the entire world was already taken, saturated by other colonizers. So they fought each other. So Lenin said an, a hallmark of modern capitalism would be Endless war, inevitable war. And then you had the Soviet-Russian Revolution, and then after World War II, China, Vietnam, Korea, the Eastern and Central European socialist countries. And they were sort of making the argument that while they had armies, they were fighting for peace. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that camp dissolved, we go back to some of the fundamental features outlined by Lenin in 1916. Yes, there weren't colonies as much. There were neo-colonies. Now there were big changes in the world. But these principles were the guiding light. And without the principles, it's like the left becomes like chickens without heads, the running around, yeah. chasing after the headlines, maybe supporting Putin because he sounds anti-imperialist or in the main, in the case of Europe, supporting their own governments yeah. who are at war against Russia, but no independent socialist program. That's the whole point of principles. Right. No, I think that's a very good point. I mean, you know, the reality that we live in right now, I mean, you know, the whole America decided after the end of the Cold War, you know, the so-called rules-based international order, which really just means America makes all the rules and everyone else has to follow. And if you aren't followed, you're demonized, you're isolated, you're sanctioned, your regime changed, whatever. And in the context of that, it's deeply untenable because, as you say, I mean, the true nature of why is it that the nation state even exist? Because the nation state, and Lenin said this, of course, is the best overall shell for capitalism. And so it's the best way to organize a capitalist mode of production. So inevitably, by having one big imperialist power and a bunch of capitalist countries, there's a few socialist countries, but by and large, a bunch of capitalist countries, the natural reality and the natural rhythm of capitalism is the people who aren't really in the imperialist club but are still capitalists are going to want to continue to grow, to continue to expand. They're going to want their companies to be globe-spanning companies that are seen like the U.S. companies and the European companies, you know, on par and on the same level. But that ultimately that means that as a nation state then that they want to rise into the ranks of the so-called leading countries, the imperialist countries, but they don't want anyone else in the club. I mean, they divided the world amongst themselves and said, we're closing the door behind us. And we might redivide it, you know, when in the room amongst ourselves, but we we certainly aren't going to let you in no matter how hard that you knock. In fact, we'll do everything possible to put stuff up against the door to keep you out. And we've seen that, you know, pretty consistently, I think, with Russia since the collapse mm -hmm. of the Soviet Union right. is that they're, they consider themselves to be a world power. They say, hey, we're also capitalist. We're also, you know, for a lot of the things that you're for, but we have a very different view of certain questions and we want to be able to have our say on par with the United States. We don't think that you should be able to determine all global issues and that, you know, Russia, China, other nations should also be able to have a word. But at the end of the day, they're like, no, this is totally unacceptable, which means that, you know, the nature and the inevitability of war is only going to continue to grow because ultimately you have people who have these natural capitalist in inclinations ruling these countries and, well, not really 
administering the countries on behalf of their local elites who want to continue to advance, but continually again and again and again running up against this imperialist wall saying you can go no further. You can only get but so big. You can only have but so much technology. You can only have but so much influence in your region and certainly only but so much influence on the world stage, which means the clashes will become more and more. And I think that is ultimately what we're seeing here is the diplomatic clashes, the sort of, you know, shadow game clashes, the hybrid war clashes are now giving way to real war clashes, you know, it's eventually these things are going to boil over. It's like a holding a lid on a boiling pot. So yeah, I think the reality for the socialist movement is the need to have independent principles to recognize that the collapse of the unipolar world order is not going to in and of itself bring a new world. A new world has to be constructed. It has to be visioned. People have to be able to see what it can mean and to transform the existing thing into something new. It's not just going to be handed over to us. And in the context of that collapse, things can get very, very dangerous and very, very warlike unless there's some sort of basic system to manage it and unless there's some sort of horizon to move past these various contradictions. Yeah, I, I hear you. And, you know, the, the hypocrisy of the situation right now is so gross. And on the socialist program on our Tuesday show, we we covered, we used the media coverage where people, the people in the Western media talking about, like, mm. this isn't Iraq. This isn't Syria. This isn't Afghanistan. These are civilized people. Yeah. Some of them are actually talking about, these are civilized. They're European people. They look like us. Yeah. They're like the people who are your neighbors, and now they're <laughs> refugees. Right. I mean, and here you have the U.S. I mean, the intervention in Afghanistan took 240,000 lives. Mm -hmm. 240,000 Afghans are dead. Yeah. Maybe a million Iraqis died who would not have otherwise died. And the U.S. did this. And then all of these crocodile tears... I even heard Condoleezza Rice on, on the morning. Did you yeah, hear her? Yeah, with Harris she was like, on Fox. It's a war crime to invade a sovereign nation. Yeah. Like she was one of the architects of the invasion of Iraq. really, yeah. But here's the thing. The U.S. has a waiver. Yeah. Every crime that they're accusing Russia of, and even if Russia is guilty of them, and we don't want to do the whataboutism and discount if there's criminal activity or this invasion is unnecessarily taking lives in Ukraine. We don't want to minimize that. We Not at all. But the, the sheer hypocrisy of the presentation, and again, you look at the UN vote, the General Assembly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's five countries voted with Russia, showing how completely isolated Russia is. There's 35 abstentions, yep. 141 voted to condemn Russia. But there was none of this about the Iraq invasion or the Afghanistan invasion or the war in Yugoslavia, NATO's war in Yugoslavia, NATO's yep. war against Libya. No, I mean, I think the level of, you know, quote unquote emergency is stunning. I mean, I think people have been commenting on this, especially in the global south about how they're, I mean, you know, you look at what's happening in Yemen, the world's worst humanitarian crisis, and it just, it's, there's nothing. It's almost like crickets, essentially. And in fact, you've got the UAE strong arming all these countries to come in and put more sanctions on the Houthis as if it's the Yemeni people's fault that they're all being, you know, starved and murdered. And I think that we see consistently that the crimes of the West are continually excused. I mean, you've had countries like the U.S. and Canada, for instance, that have made veiled threats against the International Criminal Court if they go after Israel. I mean, the United States in and of itself, every country they go to and they have bases in, they go out of their way to develop these deals to make sure that American soldiers have total impunity. I mean, people forget about this now, but, you know, one of the main reasons why the Obama administration pulled the U.S. troops from Iraq is that in the Status of Forces Agreement, Iraq did not want to agree to the idea that U.S. soldiers should have complete and total immunity from all war crimes they may commit while in the country. And so the U.S. said, okay, well, if you can't commit to that, 
we can't stay. We just have to leave because we can't accept a world where we can't just commit whatever war crime we want to be able to commit and, you know, have anyone try to potentially hold us accountable. And you, I mean, even see Anthony Blinken at the UN Human Rights Council this week, uh, meeting that Lavrov could not attend in person because of the bans on Russian aircraft all over Europe. But, you know, Anthony Blinken making this sort of veiled thing about whether or not some members, and in this case, obviously Russia should be members of the UN Security Council. Well, who are you? to be arguing who should be members of the UN Security Council, or Human Rights Council, rather, excuse me, given the human rights abuses of the United States. So, you know, again and again and again, we see this hypocrisy. And I'm glad you mentioned the issue of whataboutism because people often say, oh, this is whataboutism. But it's not whataboutism. It's the crucial context to why some people will support Russia. I mean, because at the end of the day, there are many people around the world who look at this and say, well, if the U.S. gets to go doing whatever they want to do, how come other people can't go do whatever they want to do? And why are there these double standards? Why is there this hypocrisy around you know, international relations and so on and so forth. And these people, especially targeted people, don't see it as whataboutism. They don't see it as a side point. They actually see it as the central point, that part of the main reason, and I think it was actually uh, the South African ambassador of the United Nations made this point this week. I might be mistaken about that, that, you know, quite frankly, there is no focus on violations of the UN Charter that are committed by the United States and other Western nations. And they were sort of saying, you know, why are these principles being applied only in one case and not in another case, whether Russia is right or wrong? And I think that when we look at that sort of level of double standard, that's what can make it so difficult to develop global standards about, you know, sanctions, around war, around human rights, because it all just becomes an issue, as I said at the beginning, of might make right. Whoever can do something is able to do something. And whoever can use their military power and their money and their financial power to do something is able to get away with it. And in that kind of world, you can only have a variety of double standards, a mass of hypocrisy, people acting in, in, in just totally unlawful and totally amoral ways. And I think ultimately this is, again, I mean, this is really everything we're seeing in Ukraine, in my view, the, the culmination of all of these contradictions on the international stage, all of the contradictions of the unipolar imperialist order, the idea that it's a total lawless world and that the only thing that really controls anything is do you have nuclear weapons or not? And if you have nuclear weapons and you're able to do things that other countries are not able to do, you're able to dominate people in ways they're unable to dominate, you're able to violate all international laws in ways other people are not able to violate all international laws. And in the case of the United States, which is the most powerful economic country, you can then also use your economic power to exclude people from the global economy, which for the average everyday person in any country that excluded is excluded is you know extraordinarily extraordinarily you know problematic so yeah i mean to me it's a problem of hypocrisy it's a problem of double standards it's a problem ultimately of imperialism yeah and that's why going back to where we started the principles are so important yeah. and again the principles nato caused the war there's no solution without nato dissolution uphold the un charter oppose anti-communism and build socialism yeah. a system not based on competition uh, but based on human cooperation. Let's go back to, well, I want to yeah. stay with the hypocrisy issue, but it kind of plays into sure. where I want to go with this conversation. When Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in August, August 2nd, 1990, there was a dispute between yeah. Iraq and Kuwait. The Iraqis viewed Kuwait a lot the way the Chinese view Hong Kong, yeah. that the British had come, they stole it, they landlocked Iraq. Kuwait was like basically an oil company with a flag, but it was really a British you know, outpost. Yeah. And so when Saddam had a dispute with Kuwait, invaded Kuwait, and then said, look, we're going to make it the 19th province of Iraq or whatever. Mm -hmm. We're going to reunite the motherland. You know, in a way, using some of the nationalist lingo, 
of Putin who's talking about like Ukraine really isn't a country. Yeah. Like it's kind of a fake country that Lenin created and they're going to bring it back into the Russian motherland. You know, all that same lingo. Well, Saddam invades Kuwait and the U.S. imposes sanctions, mobilizes a half a million troops and then goes to war. Now, there could have been an easy negotiated solution. Mm -hmm. The Iraqis and Saddam Hussein were expecting the negotiations. They thought they'd get rid of the Kuwaiti royal family. They'd get a new Kuwaiti government that wasn't going to steal their oil and, you know, sort of fight with them all the time. Maybe be a junior partner, a proxy government for the Iraqi government, but it would be negotiated. U.S. scotched all that. They got the Saudis to agree to take huge numbers of U.S. troops. And, and the U.S. went to war and they sanctioned Iraq. Now, at that time, I was an organizer of... One part of the anti-war movement, we had big demonstrations in Washington. There was a split in the anti-war movement because the other wing of the anti-war movement, led by some of the traditional peace groups and other organizations, no need to mention any names at this point, sure. they said, we can't march with you, with the coalition mm -hmm. we were organizing, because we were saying, not only is war not the answer, but the cause of the war was U.S. imperialism. They said, you have to also blame Iraq. Right. And we said, we're living in the United States. The United States could end this thing right now with a negotiated settlement, but they don't want a negotiated settlement. So that other wing of the anti-war movement, at the time the war started, marched under the banner, sanctions, not war. Mm. Sanctions, not war. Now, we now know, and our argument at the time was sanctions are war. When you yeah. deprive people of food and medicine, you're killing them. You're using another means, a silent means to kill them. Now, the reason I'm bringing all of that up is that and this goes back to the, the issue of principles. The U.S. never gets sanctioned. Right. The U.S. never gets, you know, the people of the United States are not deprived food and medicine or electricity or the things that we need to sustain life because the government that speaks in our name invaded all of these other countries. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's really unconscionable, even for those sections of the left who don't support and shouldn't support the Russian invasion of Ukraine to be joining with their own governments in demanding sanctions on Russia when, in fact, the imperialists, their governments, are getting away with murder, literally, and never being sanctioned. Yeah, I mean, the real question people have to ask themselves, especially in the Western countries and the NATO countries, is especially if they're opposed to what happened with Ukraine, with Russia invading Ukraine, is, well, what's going to address this? How is this going to be stopped? How are you going to establish peace? How are you going to roll this back? So, you know, you can fulminate against Russia all you want. I mean, there's no doubt about that. You can talk about how horrible Putin is all you want. Fine, go right ahead. Do whatever you want to do. None of that is going to actually solve the problem. And you have to look at the root, and I think this is what you talk about when not solidarizing with your own government, when your own government is the root cause of the problem. Because honestly, and this is why many people I know who said there wasn't going to be an invasion are, you know, apologizing or whatever. But this is why I feel like I don't feel the need to apologize. I certainly did not think they were going to invade. But the whole substance of the commentary that I've been making, that you've been making, that people have been making for 40 years about this issue is, well, if this NATO expansion stuff keeps pushing towards the Russian right. border, eventually, regardless of what anyone wants, it could tip over, probably likely to tip over into war, and it could be deeply destructive. And, you know, here we are right now in exactly that moment. And so ultimately, you have to ask yourself, what can I say? in terms of what my government can do for those people who are in the West that can possibly put the brakes on this thing, roll this thing back, and that's to push your governments, the U.S. and the European governments, to say, yes, we do recognize that there are legitimate security right. concerns that are being raised by Russia. You don't even have to agree with them, but you just have to acknowledge that they exist and that they are real and that Russia's actions are, in fact, being dominated and controlled by these, you know, the atmosphere, the strategic atmosphere in which they operate, and that, yes, that is true— 
Yes, we will negotiate on that. Yes, we should be willing to pull back from this. And ultimately, that NATO has to be dissolved. And this idea of enemy politics, of a you know offensive alliance that's aimed towards Russia, that in and of itself is warlike. There's no way you can make peace when you're holding a million guns at them and saying, the only way you can make peace is if you capitulate to me. You got to put the guns down and you have to be willing to listen to the other side. And again, there are a lot of complicated issues. And, and as you laid out in terms of Putin's rationale, you know, a lot of the things he's raising are ahistorical, historically incorrect, historically decontextualized. They in and of themselves are not the solution to resolving these problems. But there's only going to be a peaceful resolution if there's a feeling inside of Russia and inside of you know other countries that feel similarly to Russia and the region, Belarus and others, that there isn't going to be essentially a conspiracy to overthrow them or to wage war against them or an alliance of nuclear armed states that are going to be right up against their border, basically daring them to do something and maybe become attacked and be completely obliterated and annihilated. And so ultimately, it's it can feel difficult because it's like, oh, well, people are saying Russia invaded and NATO defends against Russia. So shouldn't we be for NATO now? Because doesn't this make it right? But no, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They pushed so in such a warlike fashion that a war then broke out. And then now want to say, see, we were right the whole time when they could have prevented it in many different ways and in many different consequences and many different circumstances. And so ultimately, we have to go back to this core principle of what can those who are in the West, especially in the heart of the imperialist be? actually demand that can bring peace, that can walk this back, that can start to move in a direction away from war, away from death, and away from destruction. And that's dealing with the root cause issues, which are caused by the Western countries, by the NATO countries, and their desire to dominate certainly the globe, but absolutely Europe, and to deny Russia any legitimate role inside of the broader European conversation. And we're in week two. We've entered week two of this terrible war in Ukraine. Yep. And Eugene... If people in the United States want to do something to stop the war, yes, you could join a protest to denounce Russia, but that's meaningless. I mean, truly meaningless. Yeah, I Russia mean, does not care about that. You're joining with your government to denounce Russia. But instead, what you're saying is have an activity or raise your voice wherever you can and say to the U.S. government, well, why don't you go back to the negotiating table right now? I mean, the U.S. could do this right now. Yeah. It could go right back and say to Russia, look, Ukraine's going to be a neutral country, right? Yeah, easily. I mean, they could just go back and say, listen, okay, fine. We see, we get it. Ukraine's going to be neutral. They're not going to become a member of NATO. You know, we've talked before about some of the things that we could do around, you know, missiles in Europe, around inspections, around deconfliction protocols, around nuclear disarmament. I mean, all the things that we've talked about for years off and on, but made very little progress on. Let's actually talk about that. Let's pull back the troops. Let's say we're not going to do these aggressive military exercises. Let's agree to have, you know, big reductions in our nuclear clear arsenals to show, you know, a sign of goodwill on both sides towards moving towards peace. Let's talk about how there can be a collective security that brings everyone together, which also includes, you know, conversations, more deep conversations about the economic setup in Europe and the nature of the EU and its relationship to Russia and all these questions that have been, you know, many of them date very far back into the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. But all of these questions around how you can have a different form of security architecture than this Cold War style enemy politics reality. You could easily do that. The United States ultimately is the country that can give the biggest signals to Russia of a different reality and that you could go to the table and you could have a negotiated solution. But it's the reality is it's obvious they don't want a negotiated solution because if the U.S. wanted a negotiated solution, they would have just said, four weeks ago, yeah, Ukraine is never going to join NATO. I mean, even though they said in 2008, yes, Ukraine will eventually join, 
more or less ever since that moment, they've been kicking the can so far down the road, kicking the ball so deep into the long grass that to anyone who wants to actually look at what's going on, it's relatively clear that Ukraine is, was probably not going to come into NATO. You know, last summer, Zelensky comes to a Washington, D.C., tried to actually say that they were going to let them into NATO. And Biden had to walk it back and say, no, 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 we're not letting them into NATO. So all they really had to do was just state their already existing policy and just more definitively outline that and then carry on with the things that both sides did say that they could agree on, which were talking about how to reduce the number of missiles, talking about how to reduce military exercises. All the things that they said they could talk about would have followed and trained there and you could have de-escalated the whole crisis. The United States is not unhappy right now. The United States is quite happy, I think. I mean, they yeah. say they're very unhappy about the war, but I think they're very happy. I think so for sure. I mean, you know, the rumor is, is that Biden's going to ask for $800 billion this year for the Pentagon. If you look at the most recent national defense strategy, it says this explicitly, that our number one enemies are Russia and China, that we need to spend more money on the military to create a more lethal force. And here it is. They're going to be able to say, well, look, everything we said about Russia, they're dangerous. They're, you know, invading people. They don't care about diplomacy. And so we need more money for the Pentagon. We need more money for nuclear weapons. We need more for this. And then you look at what's happened inside of Europe and all of the critical voices against NATO have basically been extinguished. I mean, sort of left, right, or center, anyone questioning NATO has now either, you know, hidden under a rock or has changed their position and, or at least has diluted their position to such a degree that it is, you know, really not any opposition to NATO at this point. And so I think the U.S. is very happy because they've increased block discipline inside of Western Europe. And, you know, maybe they're also happy because they've opened up a, a great new lane for the fracking industry in the United States to be able to sell gas to European nations that are, killing their own people's monthly budgets in order to be in lockstep with this anti-Russia reality that's going on. So yeah, I think they're pretending they are not happy, but over and above anything else, NATO, which is an alliance that I think a lot of more people were starting to question why it even existed. Well, that's now out of the window. And well, you know, you get the same point. Yeah, no, but that's, that's the thing. That's why this tactic by Russia, this military invasion has backfired so badly. I mean, we don't know how the thing ends because, yeah. you know, I mean, Russia put its nuclear forces on high alert, or that's what they said anyway. Right. We don't know. Once you're in this level of conflict, anything, anything can, happen. can happen. I mean, you know, nobody in September or August, say, 1962, thought we were going to be at the brink of thermonuclear war yeah. in October 62, which is what happened with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yep. And if Khrushchev had not backed down and removed the missiles from Cuba, yep. there probably would have been thermonuclear war. No, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, and I think that where we are now, I mean, obviously in the State of the Union, Biden has sort of drawn the red line of, you know, if Russia goes any further than Ukraine, we will come in. And it's easy to say, oh, well, it's hard to see that happening, da 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 but how these things are interpreted. I mean, obviously, these European countries seem to not want to give these jets to Ukraine. But let's just say they did give the jets to the Ukraine. Well, how was that really interpreted in the context of a struggle between NATO and Russia if a Polish jet flown by a Ukrainian pilot is shot down by a Russian plane? Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the answer to that, but it's just the very fact that these countries seem to actually have gotten cold feet about sending these planes— seems to actually speak to that point, that no one's actually quite sure how some of these issues could be interpreted. And I think when you have that kind of gray area, that's exactly what creates the basis of the possibility for a wider war to break out, especially when you have people who want a wider war to break out. I know it seems strange in many ways, but what well, you can see it in the UK, Keir Starmer, the head of the Labour Party. I was, 
somewhat shockingly, saying that he thinks there should be a no-fly zone. So Keir Starmer to the right of Marco so Rubio. Let's just let's break that out. A no-fly zone is actually that's war with yeah, Russia. You, yeah, yeah. No fly zone means that no one else can fly other than what you says, which means if someone comes into your area, you got to shoot them down. Right. And that's why even Marco Rubio is saying, "Well, we can't do that. That's going a step too far." But again, you see people who, and I mentioned Keir Starmer because he's so desperate to be seen as not Jeremy Corbyn, he wants to show he's actually willing to risk nuclear war with Russia to show how he's not Jeremy. And they Corbyn. shut down the uh, the Labor Party youth because they said something. They condemned <laughs> Russia, but they also said something negative about NATO. Yeah, they. I think it was like three tweets condemning Russia. The first one was like calling out Putin by name, but then, you know, they mentioned as is true that NATO has played a role that, and you know, in previous statements, they'd mentioned that the UK should withdraw from NATO and they just took the thing away from them. Even, and even people, even people who are like super pro NATO were like, wow, I can't believe that. It seemed like such a pro NATO statement, not pro NATO. Against Russia. Against Russia, that people were shocked. And it just shows aggressively that there are people out there who for their own political purposes are willing to push things to the most dangerous level. So again, when you have that gray area where it's not even 100% clear how every single conflict will be defined, and you have people on each side who, in bad faith, will probably try to define things in the most bellicose way possible, you just never really know where it's going to end. And I think that ultimately, you know, this is a very dangerous moment and a very dangerous reality because of that. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time, Eugene, speculating. Sure. Um, I know that you're a mind reader, so that should play right into yes. your wheelhouse. But all joking aside, I want to speculate about why Russia actually did this. Mm-hmm. Because NATO seemed to have no apparent valid, viable mission. I mean, the Soviet Union collapsed. The Warsaw Pact countries collapsed. That was the socialist bloc's answer to NATO that was created in 1955. So their military alliance is gone. NATO, the Americans promised Russia, we're not going to move eastward by one inch, whatever. And then they take over all of the former Russian (laughs) allies. And during that time, NATO goes to war in Afghanistan, not close to the North Atlantic. Mm It bombs the hell out of Libya in 2011, destroys the Libyan government, the government and the country that had the highest standard of living in Africa. They destroy Libya, and Hillary Clinton comes and says, we, we came, we saw he died or yeah. whatever, sort of joking about the execution, the lynching of a head of state, 70-year-old man uh, in the streets of Libya. And before that, they bombed Yugoslavia. Yeah. There's all this talk about this is the biggest war since World War II in Europe. Well, yeah. the U.S. dropped, NATO dropped 28,000 bombs and missiles on Yugoslavia and destroyed that country. Mm-hmm. Now, NATO didn't have a valid mission. And so the Russian argument against eastward expansion was resonating in Germany. I mean, you had Olaf Schatz, the new prime minister, yeah. meeting with Putin, you had Macron and France frantically meeting with Putin. The French and the Germans were like, okay, we see your point. We understand. Maybe they didn't have a big enough spine or strong enough spine to stand up to the U.S., but there were all these divisions and contradictions, and the Germans certainly didn't want to give up Nord Stream 2. And then Putin sort of inexplicably, like, invades, and all of the contradictions that were present against NATO have vanished. Now, the Soviet Union, since the beginning, since 1917, the cardinal rule of Soviet foreign policy was don't let all the imperialists unite against us, right? And that was like Stalin's policy after Lenin's death. You could see 
The Soviet Union was hoping that Britain and France would come into a collective security agreement against Nazi Germany. When they said no, they signed a secret non-aggression pact with Hitler in 1939. But the idea was that we can't fight all the imperialists at the same time. That will be the end of Russia, the end of the Soviet Union. Putin, by taking this action, has united all of the imperialists. Instead of driving a wedge between the imperialists who had contradictions amongst themselves, he's brought them together. Yeah. I mean, it seems like such a bizarre strategy. And I mean, Putin has never seemed like a reckless figure in the past. And anyway, let's speculate, like what caused this change in thinking? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's so many questions you have to ask. I mean, I think the other element you have to put into it is the fact that, you know, a lot of how this has played out has been more or less how the U.S. was saying it was going to play out, which means that they had pretty high-level intelligence. It, that's the only real conclusion I can take. And that, obviously, if the Russians— Meaning they're playing, inside the Soviet high command. Yeah, the they're Soviet, in there somewhere inside yeah. the Russian high command. And so, you know, obviously, the Russians, if they were going to do it the whole time, would, I mean, they had to have known. I mean, if you say, I'm going to do something, and someone says, hey, you're going to do this, obviously they knew. So when you think about it like that, why would they have gone right up to the day before the war— with this sort of irreverence around the issue of invading. Now, I mean, there's, I think, probably what would be the consensus view in Western media, which is that, you know, Russians, quote unquote, are just duplicitous people and that they didn't care. They don't care what the impacts are because they're evil and they're horrible and they don't care about people's lives and so on and so forth. And so they just lied to the whole world in order to create the maximum amount of surprise in order to do the invasion. That certainly is one possibility. Not necessarily the one I favor the most, but it's one possibility. You know, also it could be, and I think to me this is more likely, that there was some sort of disagreement inside of the Russian elite over whether to do it or not. Not that they weren't prepared for this kind of thing. I'm sure they were wargaming it. I'm sure there were multiple different things. And perhaps there were wings of people, maybe even the majority of people at one point, who it seemed like it was trending towards not invading. And so, yeah, if you didn't think that it was the pressure was going to push you to do it, you, of course, would continue to have this level of irreverence. And then almost overnight, everything seems to shift. So did the balance of power shift inside of the Russian elite over whether they should do this or whether they shouldn't do that? Who is on what side? I really don't know. But it does sort of seem like when you put all these different things together, both the fallout of it, the impact of it in terms of Russia's broader economic circumstance, and the fact that there was just, you know, such a seeming just total, I mean, the Ukrainians didn't even think this was going to happen. Yeah, and Zelensky assume, yeah. had been telling the U.S., stop warning about an invasion. It's not going to happen. And I assume they've got some intelligence themselves. So obviously, it seems to me that perhaps there was some sort of something going on internally there. I don't know exactly what it could be. I mean, there's all sorts of random theories I could sort of come up with. I, I, I don't know. They're all just random theories. But it just seems very unlikely to me that you would, and again, you said that Putin's not a reckless person, traditionally in this sense, that they would not just walk right into a propaganda trap that had been laid for them by the United States. If they knew this was going to happen, you'd think they would at least have shifted their rhetoric a little bit more. I mean, they had that little thing about, we'll take military technical measures at the very beginning. They didn't really say that much more about it. Yeah, let's. I want to just help the audience understand this a little bit. Even the Russian foreign ministry spokesperson, she made a joke, oh, the media in the U.S. is saying, the media in the West is saying there's going to be an invasion on such and such a day. Please let me know because I want to schedule my vacation. Yeah. Like really making jokes about making it. Making total jokes about it. And you'd think that if you felt like, okay, hey, we're going to do this and they know, and we don't want to be, we don't want to have people who are generally favorable to the idea that NATO pushing up against Russia is a threat to, you know, have the legs cut out from under them, that you might shift your rhetoric a little bit. And you might start to say, well, hey, we really don't want to invade. We really want peace. These are the things we're really negotiating on. But 
we're not afraid. And you think you would do that kind of thing to sort of psychologically prepare people for the idea that it's going to it's going to happen. Let me let me right let me it. let me spin that out then a little bit and see if this is, you know, I want to just confirm what you're sure. saying. So so Putin says at the end of the year press conference, look, we have red lines. Ukraine is not going to come into NATO either formally or as a de facto member. And Ukraine and the other countries close to us or on our border are not going to be a staging ground yeah. for advanced weapons. And you have to negotiate with us, NATO and the U.S. You have to take us seriously because we're putting our foot down. And to prove it, we have a plan B. And the plan B is like a mass 150,000 Russian troops in Russia or in Belarus all around the northern and eastern part of Ukraine. And Putin saying, and the Russians saying, look, we want to negotiate. We're really serious this time. We're not going to let Ukraine become like a, an ever-present menace to us. But we have a, this other plan. And maybe Putin thought the Ukrainian government, once they moved in, would collapse. And then Russia would name like a proxy government, a puppet government. Ukraine would be moved into a sphere of Russian influence. It would be a neutral country. The Ukrainians would welcome it because it would come back to the motherland, as he pointed out, because Lenin had created this fake country called Ukraine. Anyway, I mean, you would think that something like that was happening. But the, again, the issue that you're speaking to is like, if they were going public, and there's all this anti-NATO sentiment in Europe, which is real, yeah. including from Germany and France, even though they're part yeah. of NATO, you would say, look, if you don't negotiate with us right now, we're going to invade. So please negotiate with us. Right. But instead, what the Russians said is, please negotiate with us. We're really serious. And this thing about this invasion, not true. Right. So all the anti-imperialist, anti-NATO people were saying, look, the Russians aren't going to invade. The Russians aren't going to invade. That's you, American imperialists, creating a war danger. And then the Russians invade. It makes no sense from a tactical point of view, unless you don't care about European public opinion. But how can you not care about European public opinion? I mean, it, it, especially when it seems like you put so much into cultivating European public opinion. I mean, and there's no doubt that Russia has a very active public diplomacy. I mean, not only are they doing a lot of business, but, you know, there's longstanding cultural ties. There's different things like that. I mean, even, you know, right after or, you know, as the thing starts to ramp up, there is the whole row over whether or not Putin should be meeting with the leaders of all the major Italian industries. And of course, they went ahead and they did the meeting. And I remember reading the Financial Times and it would said something along the lines of, many people are not aware of this, but Vladimir Putin actually often meets with the Chamber of Commerce from all these different countries. So they have very active public diplomacy all across Europe. Obviously, you know, they have tried to present for some time now. I mean, we've heard this many times from Medvedev. We've heard it from Putin. We've heard it you know, quite frankly, going all the way back to Nikita Khrushchev, we're talking about the Soviet Union here. We heard it from Gorbachev. We've heard it from so many different people. This idea that Russia is a part of Europe and that there should be a broader sort of European house where everyone can find a way to get along and work together and have trade and commerce and so on and so forth. And there shouldn't be defensive alliances against one another. There should be collective security and so on and so forth. So essentially, they're just cutting bait on all of that and just saying, OK, well, forget it. I mean, that's that's what it seems they have done. And to me, that just feels strange. I mean, it just feels like it doesn't exactly make sense in terms of, you know, what their their general view is, unless internally the view has shifted. Because there are factions internally inside of Russia who do feel they should turn further away from the West and more towards the East, that they should sort of lean into this idea of multipolar conflict, that the West will be against them no matter what they do, that the very fact that the West won't 
even acknowledge that Russia has legitimate security concerns is a sign that they will never seriously consider anything Russia says or does include them in any security or economic pact that ultimately at the end of the day, why would you even care about that? Sometimes you just got to let it go and you got to move on. There are definitely voices in the Russian foreign policy establishment that have been saying that certainly for the past five years. I've seen some people say it in the run-up to the annexation issue or the recognition issue of the two so-called people's republics in Eastern Ukraine. And to me, it feels like this feels like a shift of power. It feels like a shift in power internally in the elites in Russia over what they are willing to accept from the West, over the priority they place on trying to have a collective European concept vis-a-vis more of a Eurasian, Asia-focused concept. And that you know, in that context, then it starts to make a lot of sense why they might do this. Mm. Um, But to me, it doesn't make sense with the sort of current subset of leadership. But we have to recognize Russia's been through a lot of phases. There was the post-Cold War phase in the 1990s when it was totally prostrate. Putin comes in, lifts the country back up to a large degree, although it's, you know, highly unequal. It's, you know, completely controlled by oligarchs. And there are many, many social problems inside of Russia that many people are very upset about. That's why the Communist Party is the largest opposition party. But that being said, you know, that there is really really a crossroads for Russia now. How do they do any more than where they are? How do they not be totally contained into the container in which the U.S. and the West are determined to force them no matter what Russians of any type, the elite or the average person wants to see? Well, some people might say we have to break out of the container. And the only way to break out of the container is to turn on the West. Or to say turn on the West is maybe not the right way to do it, but to stop really caring about their concerns over and above what people, some people in the elite view as the Russian national interest. So I don't know, but it feels like something shifted and that it was an internal power balance that shifted that you know favors this sort of, of move. Yeah. So they've given up on negotiations. They invade Ukraine. They say, we're willing to endure all the problems. It seems to me that they expected that they would win quickly because the Ukrainian government was so weak, Zelensky would be so weak, they would flee, that they would just get this over with. They wouldn't end up like what's happening now. They're bombing Kharkiv in the east. That's a Russian population in the eastern part of Ukraine. Obviously, the Ukrainians, including Russian-speaking parts of the population, the people in the east, the people who would historically have been more connected to Russia, now are affirming Ukrainian identity in the face of uh, an invasion from a foreign country. So all of that seems to have, you know, tilted, as you said, they were willing to risk all of that, but expected a different outcome. I think they expected that this would be more of a cakewalk. And instead, it's inflamed nationalist resistance in Ukraine. People are volunteering. People are building, making Molotov cocktails in public squares. And it's not all Nazis making them. I mean, just to make it clear with our audience, there is a very strong right fascist force that you talked about in the beginning and our principles. But, you know, when you have a foreign country intervening in your country, it has the tendency to unite people. And and bravery, of course, is a social phenomena. You know, when, when it's you against the tank, that's one thing. But when I saw videos where... Unarmed Ukrainians were, you know, I don't know if they're real or not, this video. Yeah, yeah, but the video turning them back. But the other aspect of that is that the trucks are turning back. Yeah, they weren't They weren't driving <laughs> they over They weren't people. just driving over them. I mean, I saw a protest in front of some headquarters from some Russian thing. Can you they imagine were, if those were Iraqis who had tried to stop an American tank? Totally. They totally, would have just blown them up. Totally. You know, and that, where does this lead? I don't know. How do Russians feel about this? I, I don't know. I mean, it's. I don't want to speculate too much on that, to be honest with you, because I think it's kind of a black box. I'm sure some people support it. Obviously, some people don't. We've seen thousands of people arrested in anti-war protests. But, you know, that being said, 
to me, that was notable, that they didn't just run them over or gun them down. And it does speak to a lot of this sort of shared history, shared culture. I think that part of the reason why there was such a focus on the whole denazification issue is I think everyone in Russia, I think most people around the world, quite frankly, can 100% get down with not having any Nazis involved anywhere at any government at any time. I feel Nazis are not popular. But I don't think that the average Russian is viewing Ukrainians as the enemy or something. And so the fact that the war was sort of presented as defending the Donbass and Luhansk, defending these quote-unquote pro-Russian areas, I mean, all of that is honestly so confused. And, you know, there's so much to be said about sort of quote-unquote Russian identity, ethnic Russians, Russian language, Ukrainian, Ukrainian language, religion, the Soviet overlay of that and how that's in fact impacted people and brought people together from different parts of the former Soviet Union. So in a way, I'm sort of loath to even use that framing 100%. But, you know, it's prese- it was presented one way. Like, this is about Nazis and this is about the Donbass. And then it seemed to have been carried out in a different way where it seemed like, now nah, this is actually a takeover of the whole Ukraine. And the sort of demilitarization of Ukraine, the fact that they're saying they're going to put Zelensky on trial, you know, all these things that have been said. And I just wonder, you know, like, is that a part of why the war is going the way it is? I mean, there's sort of, you know, you can't take a major city without a lot of civilian casualties in a war, in a modern war. And it seems that in many ways, the Russians Unless it's are, Kabul. Unless it's Kabul, yes. When the government just flees. Just flees. And yeah. I think that, you know, the Russians are obviously hesitant to you know, they're not going to turn Kiev into Grozny. I mean, that doesn't seem, because obviously it goes against the political aims. They said, this is not about the average Ukrainian. This is just about the Nazis. And so I think all of these different contradictions are starting to play out in terms of how this looks and how it's playing. And yeah, I don't know what they expected. I don't know if they were prepared. I don't know if, it just seems like it came out of nowhere. And I know that people will rip me for that and say, no, of course, Putin's terrible. And he invades all these countries and he kills people and hates people and is a devil and all these things. And that's everything in the Western media now. But when you see the reality of the situation, it's hard to see what's really gained here. And it's hard to see how they actually accomplish their goals. So again, I really do believe when you look at the situation that it's hard to understand outside of any context other than a power struggle inside of Russia and inside the Russian elites over what the orientation towards the West really should be at this juncture in history. Yeah. One of the things that Putin said in his speeches, and his speeches are really worth reading. Yeah. I encourage our audience to get the English, if you're an English speaker, the English translation and and read it. One of the things he said is that we have had, we've been down this road before. This is in his last speech, the last one I read. Yeah. He said, we've been down this road before where war was coming and our government was too keen to try to appease the aggressor rather than to prepare the country. Yep. And then he sort of makes these elliptical references to what is clearly the orientation of Stal- the Stalin government in 1939, which having failed to enlist Britain and France and the United States in an anti-fascist collective security agreement, mm-hmm. makes a secret pact, a non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany, which of course for communists was like shocking for most communists, like in the CP in the United States, tens of thousands of people resigned because they were like, wait, we've been organizing against fascism and now the Soviet Union is making a non-aggression pact as if their partnership is with fascists. But Stalin's and the Soviet attitude was, if the West is trying to force Germany to invade the Soviet Union and they're not gonna come to our assistance, we don't want to fight all the imperialists together. So if you won't make an agreement with us, we'll make an agreement with Hitler. Yep. Like that was the strategy. Don't let the imperialists unite against us. But Putin in his speech then says, 
we appeased the aggressor, and as a consequence, we weren't prepared. Now, this is a big controversy mm -hmm. about what actually happened in the first weeks when the Nazis had their surprise attack in June 1941, yep. and it was through Ukraine, and millions of Ukrainians and Russians died. Yep. And I think 400,000 Jews were massacred, Ukrainian Jews. It was like really the beginning mm -hmm. of the anti-Jewish genocide as well. And his argument is really, when you boil it down, Eugene, it's like, if war is inevitable, we can't appease, we have to get ready. Mm -hmm. And that was Stalin's problem, was that by signing the non-aggression pact, he slowed preparation, which I'm not saying no, is correct. No, but this is Putin's argument, yes. That's Putin's argument. So is it that Putin actually, or, some, or the wing of that elite within Russia, came to the conclusion that by incorporating Ukraine into NATO by bringing these Turkish drones that fly 18,000 feet and can destroy Russian mm -hmm. tanks, that the stage was being set for inevitable war, and we might as well strike now, because this is not unusual in military thinking. Yeah. If you think war is coming now, why wait till the enemy is stronger? If it's going to come, let's do it now because we're going to be stronger now than we will be later. Is that part of it? I think so. I mean, I, I really do think that that is a big part of the calculus. And again, I, I just want to continue to reiterate this. To me, the sort of the nature of the rhetoric, the nature of what the U.S. was saying, the way that a lot of that has turned out to basically be true speaks to that to me, that there is a struggle over what should happen that it probably didn't seem like those who felt like we better strike first will prevail, but that something shifted somehow and they did in fact prevail and they went ahead and, and did this invasion of Ukraine. And to me, it just feels that what else could it really be? And in the context of you know what you see happening, I mean, the huge amount of weaponry being sent into Ukraine by the West, you know, I mean, I think I saw one of these Nazis from C-14 one of these Nazi gangs in Ukraine that actually gets a huge amount of money to do patriotic education. But he said something like this. He said, I think we now have the most javelins of any country in Europe. And those are anti-tank weapons. Anti-tank weapons. And that I was kind of taken aback by that. I was like, wow, that's, that's deep. I mean, that says a lot about the level of militarization that's gone on. The small arms. I mean, they never actually did it because it eventually And Ukraine's military is a big military. Yeah, 200-some thousand people, I think. You had Canada talking about they were going to build an ammunition factory. Never got to it. But, you know, talking about exactly this issue, about how to militarize them more aggressively. So, again, I could see if you really felt inside of the Russian elite like they're never going to listen to us. They're never going to care. They're building Ukraine up into a garrison state. So we might as well do something now, rip the Band-Aid off, and just accept the consequences and move into a different modality in terms of what Russia will be in the 21st century. Yeah, whatever internal factional struggle was going on, when I read Putin's speeches and when I try to just think this through, it seems to me that that was the conclusion. War is coming. I mean, let's think also, Putin said before when the U.S. canceled the ABM treaty, the anti-ballistic missile treaty, which was an anti-defense shield treaty, yep. In other words, preventing each side from having a first strike capability. And then the U.S. canceled the INF Treaty in 2019. Around the same time, the U.S. adopts this new military doctrine of major power conflict as the priority for yes. the American military. You come to the conclusion, okay, war is coming. If Ukraine has intermediate range missiles that can hit us in six or seven minutes— and they're all over this 1,200-mile border. We'll yeah. never win that war. Yeah. Our only way to win or to stabilize the situation is a preemptive war. And it seems to me, I, I think it's a terrible tactical decision, and I think it's a debacle for Russia and Russians, and I think it weakens the anti-imperialist movement all over the world. But I think that has to be 
the conclusion, or at least what they told themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think that you're right. I mean, I think that, I mean, in a way it points to the, what we were saying in the beginning about the lack of any independent movement. I mean, the Russians don't really have a positive vision for what the world can look like. I mean, you know, their proposal, the Putin proposal was never to really set Russia up as some sort of separate entity with some sort of separate vision of the world. The Soviet Union was a different concept. They were promoting socialism versus capitalism. Russia is basically saying, we're basically cool with what you guys are doing. We just want to be included. And in the context of us being included, that means that you you all got to change some of what you think in terms of, you know, various issues, not just in Europe, but around the world. I mean, Russia, you know, does want to do things like work with the socialist government of Venezuela, and the socialist government of Cuba. They want to deal with Iran. They have their own reasons for that, whatever it may be. But that's their point, is that there's not one center of power, that there should be multiple centers of power, that they should be one of those centers of power, that they're okay with other people having some influence. So how come they can't get a similar sort of, uh, you know, dispensation? from the other side. So I think that's the challenge they have is that they end up in a strategic cul-de-sac because instead of really offering a different vision of what the world can or should look like, they're really just fighting to get into the broader club, the broader club of, of the richest, most powerful nations. And so then when they're stymied in that, where do they really go? And I think that's when you then get to the issue of, of war coming so much to the, to the front page here because there isn't really a thought and a belief about how do you come together and sort of start to prevent a different, more positive vision of what the world can look like to try to have a sort of diplomatic, non-warlike means. And again, I mean, I mentioned this on the issue of the UN Charter. I mean, this is why the group of friends for the UN Charter was started. And there are powerful countries in it. There are small countries in Say it. Say some of the countries. China's in it. Russia used to be in it. Venezuela is in it. Eritrea's in it. Algeria's in it. Angola is in it. Nicaragua's Cuba. in it. Cuba's in it. You know, there's some kind of surprising countries. Equatorial Guinea. I still don't really understand that one, but they're in it. North Korea is there. You know, a number of different countries who recognize that, you know, again, the UN is not perfect. The UN Charter is not perfect. I don't think the UN Charter is going to prevent all problems for the future of the world. But in the immediate term, it does at least create the basis by which you can say, okay, one principle we can have is that we're not going to just have unilateral wars and invasions. We're not just going to have unilateral sanctions where one country, because they're powerful, decides to destroy another country. If we're going to do something that drastic, like invade a country, have a war in a country, have regime change or destroy the country due to sanctions, then at least all the other countries should probably agree. And to get all the other countries to probably agree probably has to be, you know, unequivocally egregious. Now, the problem some people have with that is they say, oh, well, people will get away with so much. But the flip side of that is the U.S. gets away with everything it wants to because it's the most powerful nation. So the idea is like introduce some level of equality in international relations. It doesn't make everything perfect, but it does create the basis whereby people don't have just a might makes right mentality and you can't unilaterally decide essentially, you know, who lives or dies, who survives, who thrives, who's in charge, what policies they have at any given time without some sort of collectivity that exists there. And when you have that sort of basic principle that one country shouldn't be able to dominate over all the other countries just because they have a bunch of nuclear weapons, then you can go one step further than that. Like, okay, well, if we all have to cooperate to do certain things, what else can we cooperate on? And if we're talking about cooperation on these issues, what do we need to do to be able to deepen our level of cooperation, which means deepening our levels of understanding, which means understanding the root causes of why people are fearful of one another, why there are differences between different nations, why people do fear they may be invaded or taken over or colonized or whatever it may be on the basis of history, on the basis of culture, on the basis of current contemporary realities. 
you know, those conversations can happen, but they can't happen in the context in which, you know, no one really has the ability to define any of these questions outside of their ability to project power in a military sense in other countries' affairs. And so ultimately, when we look at what is happening here now, I think we're looking at the strategic dead end of these capitalist countries that I think do, in many ways, have the right idea that there shouldn't just be one major power center, but don't really have another idea of what can replace that kind of system. So socialism, not multipolarity. I mean, that's basically— yeah. We don't really need multipolarity. We need unity of human beings across the globe to solve all of the challenges that are destroying humanity from climate change to hunger to poverty. I mean, none of these questions can be addressed without strong global cooperation between basically all the countries on Earth, which will probably require a lot of changes, certainly to require moving away from this capitalist imperialist system. And so socialism is the answer. And that's exactly why socialism has always been presented as a worldwide system because it's about the next stage of humanity, moving away from the nation state and the carving up of the world by a handful of nation states for their own self-aggrandizement and people around the world recognizing their shared humanity and coming together to solve society's problems regardless of whether or not it's profitable. I think that's so important, Eugene. I'm glad you articulated these five principles. NATO caused the war. There's no solution without NATO dissolution. Uphold the UN Charter. Oppose anti-communism and fascism. And socialism, build socialism. And for organizers and activists, opponents of imperialism, everybody realizes the movement against NATO is on its back heel right now. That yeah. the, the political mood has shifted. It's pro-imperialist. The NATO now seems to have a valid reason to exist when before it had none. I yeah. mean, it's a bad moment politically, but this is the time when you uphold your principles. Yes. You know, it's easy to be for principles when the movement is, you know, when you're on the upswing, when yeah. it's a fad almost to be in the left. But when it's hard, when it's difficult, when the political climate has shifted, like it was after September 11th, yeah. when you we formed barely, the Answer Coalition. You could hardly say anything. Yeah, you could hardly say anything. You have to stand up on principles and realize you might be a little bit isolated for the moment, but this situation will change too. Yeah. Because the problem that we're experiencing with war and militarism and division and colonialism and racism are the problems that are manifestations of capitalism. And if we, the movement against imperialism, want to have an effective program, it has to be an independent program. It has to be a socialist program. Yes. I mean, these are principles that are rooted in what it will really take to have peace, to have the preconditions to exist in order to actually have sustainable long-term peace. That's not going to happen under a capitalist imperialist system over the long term. In the short term, it's certainly not going to happen in a, in a system of unmanaged you know, rivalry between powerful nation states. So we have to be able to raise up this independent banner and this idea that sticking to some basic principles around you know, what's right and what's wrong vis-a-vis -vis opposition to imperialism, but also with a forward-looking, future-looking thing about what we need to do to have a different type of world so that we don't have to be constantly returning to the problem of how to stop global wars every 50 or 60 years as we keep seeming to do. Global wars, global warming, socialism is the answer. Eugene Perrier, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.